0: Here we are in Esther chapter 7. We took a few weeks uh, during Advent away from Esther, two weeks in coming into the new year. We'll finish here in the next several weeks here in Esther. So what I want to talk about this morning is our identification and how we receive that identification. You know, the world is fascinated with celebrity news, are we not? You, you can go into Uh, Just turn on your TV when you get home from church. You can go to Publix. And the the magazines that you see as you check out are all about celebrity news. And and we're so intrigued by celebrity news. And if we're honest with ourselves, it's not the celebrity news of, of like, good gossip. It's celebrity news about bad gossip, if we're honest. Like, we can't wait to see what happened to people and we're so intrigued by it. Um, You know, just scroll on your Facebook account. The, The ads that come up are all about celebrity gossip or celebrity news. And it's really about scandal. It's really a, a about, you know, what, what did that celebrity just do? What did they get caught with? How did that happen? I'd venture to say to us this morning, if uh, Esther was here in our culture, she would make the news. This chapter would make the news for her. Because there's so much scandal in this chapter. I think if you were to walk into Publix and we saw Queen Esther on the cover of one of those magazines, the headline would be this. Queen Esther reveals her true identity. Remember where we're at in the story of Esther. Esther had been plucked out of her homeland, uh, out of her people, put into this wicked, wicked heathen's court to be a harem, to be the queen. And remember what her uncle Mordecai said to her, hey. Go and let God use you in this place, but don't reveal your identity. Don't let anyone know who you are. So that's Esther. She's living undercover. Anyone ever seen Undercover Boss? That's kind of what she's doing. She's living undercover in this wicked place without revealing her identity. She's not able to publicly worship. She's not able to interact with God the way she was brought up to, trained to, told to. So She's living in the shadows, and this chapter, she finally comes out, and her identity is revealed. But I wonder for us this morning, if you were, were, you were on one of those covers of those magazines, and, and it said that for you, it says their true identity is revealed, what, would be in the magazine. What would be caught about you. My greatest fear is that we would claim here this morning to be believers. And we can interact with one another as believers here. But when we go into the world. Does that identity still stick with us. It's who we are on a Sunday morning. The same man or woman that we are on a Monday afternoon in our workplace. So what would be true about you? What is your true identity this morning? Is who you are here the same person you are out there? Or is the same person that you are out there the same one you are in here? My greatest fear, we live duplicitous lives about our identity. I want to remind us this morning about what Paul says to be true if you're a believer about your identity this morning. If you claim to be a believer, this is your true identity and yet the challenge is, do we walk with our true identity as our true identity revealed to the world? Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16 through 17. You may want to place that because we're going to come back to that passage at the end of the message this morning. But this is what Paul says, and he's pleading with the Corinthians. The Corinthians were a wicked, wicked It was a wicked church. How come people name their church after the Corinthian church is baffling to me? It's not like a good thing. When Paul writes this letter to the Corinthians, he's writing to a church, a people of God that have wandered from God, and they're acting in rebellion against God, and yet they're saying their identity is believers, but they're showing the world that that's not true about them at all. And so Paul Pins them this letter to rebuke them and draw them back to their true identity. And he says this to him in chapter 5 of the second letter From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. If you're a believer, the flesh is dead. And so Paul's saying, We're not going to regard you to the flesh because the flesh ought to be dead. If you came to Christ, the flesh should die in you, in me, in us as the church. He says, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him no longer. And then he says this, we don't live by the flesh. We don't identify with the flesh. Though you are identifying with the flesh, that is not who you are. And Paul now says in verse 17, who you are. Therefore, if anyone is at what in Christ, if they place their hope, their faith, their life in Christ, they've surrendered to Christ as their Lord and Savior. He is what he's a new creation. The old is gone. The old is passed away and the new has come. Your identity now is in Christ and Christ is in you. Is that your identity this morning? Is that our identity this morning? Would the world around us be able to identify us personally and collectively that that is a people of God that Christ is in and they live that way? Or are we taking the Esther approach and hiding our identity in a wicked world? But now Esther reveals her identity. Here in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. The identity of Esther. It ought to reveal our identity as well. I won't read that section this morning because Jared just read that. But I want to give some background again on Haman and some background on Esther. Because that's the crux of this story. Remember who Haman was. Haman was this wicked man that the king had set up second in command over all the nation. And remember when he, Haman became the second in command of the most powerful man outside the king, what he did, he declared this edict, this law, that everyone would bow to him, that anytime time he showed up, that the people around him had to bow and worship him. Do you, do you remember that part? It's in chapter 3. So he walks into the room and there's Mordecai sitting and standing in the room and everyone around this man falls and pays homage and worship Haman except one guy, Mordecai. And Mordecai refused to do that because his true identity was in God and he knew he couldn't worship anyone else. So he stood for what he believed in. And you remember Haman was outraged by this, in this moment. But this man would not bow to him. And so he walks to the king with all of his racist remarks and all of his anger and all of his rage. And he says to the king, hey, there's this people group called the Jews and they won't bow to us. They won't pay homage to us. They won't worship us. So let's write a decree to annihilate them, to kill them all. And so Haman appeals to this king's ego, his pride. And what does the king do? He signs his name on the dotted line. That he, they would have all the Jewish people that were in exile, in this town, in this country to be annihilated. Do you remember that part? So that's where we're at in the middle of the story that they had just put this decree into place that all the Jewish people, all of God's people would be killed. Starting with who? Mordecai. Remember the plot just for Mordecai's life that this wicked man Haman said, let's build the gallows, let's build this hanging pole in the middle of the city and we're going to hang him, we're going to impale Mordecai in the middle of the city so everyone can see and everyone would live in fear of us and then we're going to go kill all the Jews. So we'll kill him first on this pole and then we're going to kill everyone else. That's where we're at in the story. And there's all this pride in Haman, and he goes, and he begins to talk about, man, what's going to happen. And then there's this feast, the second feast. We're going to get to the third and last feast this morning, but there's this second feast. Well, remember, Esther kind of catches wind about what's going on. But she also catches wind about this other plot that's going on, and she reveals that all to the king. So the king at this party asks Haman about what he would do for the man to pay homage to or to honor in such a way. And remember, Haman walks into the room. He thinks that the king is going to honor him. And then he begins to play out what he would do if it was him to pay homage to. Remember that? And then the king's like, that's a great idea. And Haman's like, yes, I know it's a great idea. I can't. Wait for all that to happen to me. But then he turns to him and says, let that be done to who? Mordecai. He's like, wait, I'm supposed to hang Mordecai here in a few hours. And now you want to honor him? And remember, he goes back to his house with his cronies and his wife and begins to, like, talk about what had just happened. And the wife turns to him and says, hey, your fate, it ain't good. That's the Todd International Version. And he's like, what do you mean it's not good? And she says, hey, he's a Jew and Jews have special privileges and you're in trouble. You're going to die. And that's where we're at in this story. He's having that conversation, with his wife and his friends. And here in chapter seven is where the king's people go to Haman's house and say, hey, there's a request for you. And they whisk him off mid sentence as he's talking about his distress. They bring him to this palace. They bring him to the last feast of our story. And there's Queen Esther and and King uh, Asawaris sitting there drinking, having a great time. And they bring him in. They begin to drink. I I would imagine at this point, Haman's anxiety is beginning to decrease. That's kind of what happens when you have alcohol. Just saying. And so he sits down. They begin to have these conversations about what's going on. And remember where Queen Esther is at this time. Remember how Queen Esther got here. She was this beautiful Jewish girl minding her own business when this powerful king came into her city and took all the beautiful virgins to be his. She was in essence, the rest of her life, a sex slave to the king. That's her identity. That's who she is. And so there she is for the rest of her life at this wicked king's beck and call. She lost who she was. She lost her people. She lost the place to worship. She couldn't worship. She had to hide her identity. And yet all along the way, we see God's sovereign hand in her life. So much so that Mordecai, her uncle, said, hey, is this such a time as this that God would use you to redeem his people? And that doesn't happen until chapter 7. And so here's Esther with all of her angst, wondering how God is going to use her. Still hiding her identity. And now we get to the point in the story where she throws another party. And the king says to her, in chapter 7, verse 2, what is your wish? Esther and it shall be granted to you and what is your request even half of my kingdom I'll give it all to you here's that moment that we've been waiting for we've been waiting for this moment when we first got to Esther we've been waiting for this moment like hey all of us have been waiting for the revenge of Haman have we not like man when's he gonna get his she has an opportunity to for him to get his. But look what she does. Look how she does it. Look how her request is. In this chapter. Then Queen Esther. Answered. If I have found favor in your sight. O king. And if it pleases the king. She's appealing to him. Like If I have found beauty in your sight. If I have. Found any place in your 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 the heart of you, if I'm the apple of your eye, please grant me what I'm about to ask. And then she, he said, she says, This let my life be granted to me for my my wish. Circle this next two words in your Bible. My people. I wonder the shock, the stun, the the hush that went on the crowd that day. It wasn't just Haman sitting there with Queen Esther and the king. It would have been a party. It would have been a festival. It was a banquet. And so all these people had kind of hushed in the moment, kind of the same way when we Remember John the Baptist being beheaded. Remember, that young girl dances in front of the the, the king. And there's this hush in the moment. And he says to her, hey, whatever you ask, if you dance and you please me, I'll give it all to you. And that hush that must have gone on in the crowd. So here in this moment, the hush is on the crowd. And what does she say? Two words. My people. She basically said, I'm a Jew. And everyone in the audience, everyone that afternoon would have been like, hey, remember just a few days ago? The king said he's going to kill all those people. Now, what is he going to do? Basically, here Esther is, her true identity is finally revealed. She doesn't just pass the buck. She doesn't get down to where we see what she says in verse 6. She says, Hey, I've got to identify with these people. And identifying with these people, my life is now going to be on the line. She could have skipped over saying, My people. She did not have to identify herself with the Jews. She could have skipped down all the way to verse 6 and said, Hey, the foe, the enemy, That wicked Haman, kill him. That's what I want. But she identifies with the people. And she says to the king, with the people, hey, there's this thing that you signed, you put your name to, and this man, Haman, said for you to do it. And it's to kill all of us. And if you do that, then I have to die with my people. She turns. In that moment, in verse 5, to the king. And the king says to Queen Esther, who is it that's done this? Who is it that has killed your people? Who is it that has annihilated your people? Who is it that has sold your people into slavery? Who is this person? And we'll take care of them. She turns that moment. She points at Haman and says, he's the man. That all sound familiar to us. Remember when Nathan goes and confronts Nathan about Bathsheba? What does he say? David, you're the man. You're who's done this. She says, You're the man. And in that moment, Haman, it says, was terrified before the king and the queen. What does this have to do with us? What is our identity? Who is pointing the finger at us? Remember what Paul says about us. Remember our true identity before Christ. We are what? God's enemies. We want nothing to do with God. We want to annihilate God's people. We want to kill God's people. I know we wouldn't do that, but that's what's going on in our hearts. That's what the Apostle Paul says says in his letters to us. But as we look at Esther, and we look at her pointing the finger at him, and we look at ourselves in the mirror about our true identity, something ought to remind us. when We look at the story. Because Esther not only points to us, but she's pointing forward to somebody else. King Jesus. In the same way that Esther would have said, hey, those are my people. And if they die, I die. We see that in the life of Christ, do we not? Like Christ was in heaven in all of his majesty and all of his royalty. And God said, I love those people down there. And I've got to redeem those people back to him, to myself. And Jesus, I'm going to use you to do that. And he says to Jesus, you've got to go and you've got to identify with my people. And not only do you have to identify with them, you have to become them. That's what Jesus does. So we celebrated at Advent that God, this God in the universe, pulled on skin and became like all of us. And he said to the people, the rulers of the land, those are my people. In the same way that Esther said, hey, those are my people. If they die, I die. What did Jesus say? I'll die for my people. Esther points us to Christ. Esther points us to be reminded that there's a law, there's a a decree that's been put out onto us as the enemies of God. That God's righteous wrath is to kill people. That's God's righteous wrath. That's written in God's word. That the wrath of God will consume sinners. Unless we have someone that stands in our defense and says, those are my people and I'll die for them. And that's what Christ did for us. This is what one writer says. He says this. Esther secures only our temporal deliverance. Or their temporal deliverance, the people, the Jewish people. From the unjust tyranny of an earthly monarch. But Jesus secures eternal salvation. From the just and holy judgment of an almighty God. Esther stands with her people and intercedes on behalf of her people. Jesus stands with his people and dies in their place. Esther must persuade the king to spare the Jews. But in Jesus, the God who law condemns us, himself bears its penalty and secures our pardon. You see, that is our true identity this morning. That we are now what Paul says in Christ, which secures our security, our eternal security. My greatest fear, my greatest shame in my own life is how often I forget that. And I live my life in such a way that doesn't reflect that to the dying world that I am in Christ. I'm just part of the world. I'm in the world and of the world. God's word says be in the world, but not of the world because of your identity. In Christ, do we display our true identity in Christ to a lost world? But see, the passage doesn't stop there. Now, we're going to see how that is all secured. The word is called propitiation. Propitiation. We see that in verses 7 through 10. I'll read the passage and then teach just the for a moment it says and the king arose in his wrath so here's that moment she points at haman he is angry the king is angry at haman angry at himself in his wrath from drinking too much wine he goes out to the palace garden but Hayden, haman stayed and begged for his life from queen esther for he saw the harm that was determined for him against him by the king and the king returned into the from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine. And Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was, and the king said, Will you even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? As the word left the, the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. And then Arbona, one of the eunuchs, in attendance of the king, said to the king, Moreover, the gallows that Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose words Save the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits high. And the king says, hang him on that. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king was abated. Highlight that last part of the verse in your text, in your Bibles this morning. Just for a moment, I want to talk to us about this king. Remember, the king now is in this massive dilemma. This massive dilemma is that he had declared that the Jewish people were going to die. He had written that edict that all the Jewish people would die. And now he's made this promise to Queen Esther that whatever she wants, she can have. Which places the king in this awkward place. Do I go ahead and go through with the decree of our written? Or now do I go ahead and give Esther what she wants because I can't have both of them. They can't both be true. You you see the dilemma? This powerful king doesn't want to seem weak to his people. So he's got to make this choice. But in making this choice, he's going to appear weak. He's going to appear double-minded. He's going to appear like he can shift in the blink of an eye. There's no easy way out for this king. And so he walks out and... He's having this moment in the garden. And that moment in the garden is collecting himself to think, what am I going to do? Just as he collects himself, he, he walks in, and we see Haman, this wicked man, falling where at the feet of Esther, begging for his life. Now, of course, who wouldn't do that? I would. But there's this other Persian law that says if the king isn't present in the presence of the queen that no one can get within seven feet of her. And now he's got another dilemma. He walks in. He sees Haman fall on top of her, basically. And then he's like, okay, I know what I got to do. He's got to go. As soon as it's coming out of his mouth, they put that black hoodie on. And they take him off to the gallows. And they hang him. But here's the key to the whole passage this morning. Then the wrath... Of the king was abated. How was the wrath of the king abated? Because justice was served. The same way that God in heaven. Had put this decree that his wrath. Would kill all sinners. That's God's commandments. That's what God's holy word says. But then do we see that same dilemma that he must have faced when he knew the only way to satisfy his wrath was a holy sacrifice. That's the only way. And he then said, the way that that's going to happen, that my wrath will be abated or my wrath will be satisfied is I'm going to pour my wrath out onto who? My only son that I love. Think about that dilemma for a moment. But God knew, in His kindness, His goodness, His righteousness, and His justice, the only way that His wrath would be satisfied was by a holy sacrifice. And He knew that as long as we'd been given sacrifices, they weren't holy. They weren't without blemish. They weren't without spot. They weren't without sin. So he sent his one and only son to live a life on our behalf because he knew we would never be able to live a sinless life, but his son could accomplish that for us. Here Jesus is walking 33 years on this planet, a sinless man. Think about Holy Week, all that his son, all that God watched being poured out onto his son. All the beatings, all the mockery, all of the abuse that he went through, so much so that the the, the prophet Isaiah said they beat him so bad you couldn't even see that he was a man. And here God is in heaven, and he knows that's not enough. He knows looking at Jesus on that, that moment where he's getting ripped to shreds with the cat of nine tails, God himself is in heaven and saying, even all that punishment will not be enough. And that's the reason that God allowed Jesus to go all the way to the cross because his wrath had to be abated through his pouring it out onto a sinless sacrifice for us. That is the word that we say is propitiation. The word propitiation means this it means that there must be a sacrifice that is paid on our behalf. The literal Greek word means this turning away of the anger. By offering a gift to appease divine wrath. You see, Haman was what was poured out on. He was the propitiation. But if we're honest with ourselves, we all ought to be Haman. That amount of wrath ought to be poured out on every single one of us. But even Haman can point us to a greater sacrifice, Christ himself. Do we realize this morning that the king and his wrath have been abated? I want to read one last quote. It says this, The wrath of the king abated More than that, with Haman's death, the law is satisfied. The demands of justice met. The security of the Jews put beyond all doubt. As long as Haman lived, there would be no way for the king to meet Esther. Esther's wishes without losing face. As long as Haman lived, the offense against the king remained. As long as Haman lived, the Jewish people faced a death sentence. But when Haman died, the wrath of the king abated and the people were set free. That is true for us, church. Because of God's wrath, being satisfied on the cross, you and I are set free. You see, if that last few verses don't point us back to our identity identity and embracing our identity, I don't know what will. You see, my hope is this, that we will be reminded of what Paul says in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For while we are still enemies, Christ died for us. While we are his enemies, not his friends, his enemies, Christ died for us. He became the propitiation for our sin. Paul says it this way, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. That we might not face death. That Christ would face death. So this church. This morning. For us. This morning. I'd ask you and me. And us collectively. What does our true identity. Reveal about us. When we leave here. and we walk into a lost and dying world. Does our identity in Christ point to his holiness his righteousness but so importantly his love for lost sinners turn back in your bibles to second corinthians chapter two i told you i'd get here in closing I'll read the passages in its entirety. From now on, therefore, we regard no one, no believer according to the flesh. Even though we once, the believer, regarded Christ according to the flesh, we, the believer, regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, if anyone is a believer, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He says, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us what? The ministry of reconciliation. He gave us that same message, that same ministry that he gave Christ, to reconcile people to a holy God. He's now given that to us in Christ Jesus. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself. Not counting the trespasses against them, but entrusting us, the believer, the church, with the message of reconciliation. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. Meaning, God is walking and working with his church to make his appeal to lost people to save sinners we are his primary instruments of getting that message out is that our identity church to make his appeal through us therefore we implore you on behalf of christ be reconciled to god for our sake he made him be sin who knew no sin that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, that is our true identity. If you were in Christ this morning, you are Christ ambassadors that have been giving the ministry of reconciling the world to a holy God. That only happens when you embrace your true identity and live that out. Is that true for us this morning, church? What would the headlines say about us, house chapel? What would the headlines say about you? Would it say, oh, finally, their true identity is revealed? Or would it be, man, they are living out their identity in Christ, reconciling the world to a holy God? Because that is who we're called to be. May we live in that. The same way that God used Esther to redeem her people. Points us to Christ that redeems us. Now we ought to go and live lives that would point people to Christ. That's our identity. Let me pray for us this morning.